Tonight's reading is from Romans chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into, the heart, into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were, still, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Well, we're continuing our series looking at different aspects, different pictures, different motifs, different images that the cross uh, conjures up throughout the New Testament. And uh, the one we're looking at tonight is reconciliation from Romans chapter 5, that passage that Judy read for us a few moments ago. And it's no coincidence that over the last 40 or 50 years, two words have gone together. That whenever someone has mentioned reconciliation, the word truth has gone alongside it. Truth and reconciliation. For example, in South Africa, when after the years of apartheid, that appalling regime and distinctions made between colored and Asian and white people, that when the time came for South Africa to come together, as Nelson Mandela called it, as a rainbow nation, there had to be a truth and reconciliation commission. There had to be a coming together where those who'd been wounded, those who'd been hurt, those who'd been widowed, those who'd been grieved by the white population, had the opportunity to tell their stories. And this morning in her talk, Libby read an amazing passage where a mum came face to face with one of the police officers, a white police officer who had murdered her son and then come two years later and taken her husband and then a year later come and got her to the point where she was taken so that she could witness the execution of her husband. And this incredibly moving moment that occurred again and again and again through the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa as victims came face to face with those who would perpetrated incredible crimes against them or their family members. And again and again and again, what was offered was forgiveness. What was offered was healing. What was offered was restitution. What was offered was restoration. We heard this morning how this particular mum said that from now on, there were three things that she wanted. 
And one of them was that she wanted this particular police officer to visit her twice a month and for him to become part of her family so that she could show and demonstrate and pour out to him any love that she had left. Incredibly moving picture of what it means to forgive. An incredibly powerful picture of what it means to be reconciled. This weekend sees the 25th anniversary of the genocide in Rwanda. Rwanda, an incredibly beautiful country in Africa. But 25 years ago, this weekend, a plane was shot down carrying the president of Rwanda. And it sparked off a dispute between the two dominant tribes, the, the Tutsis, Tutu and the, the Hutsis tribe. And they, they just went at each other. And they, the slaughter were just, well, it was incredulous. The figures are mind-blowing. 800,000 people died in the next 10 days. At least six men, women, and children were murdered every minute of every hour of every day. And for 100 days, this killing continued. And beginning today, Rwanda is observing 100 days of national mourning. It's a beautiful land, and we're actually having the head of Tear Fund in Rwanda come and preach uh, later on this year here at P's and G's. But it left a nation with 75,000 orphans and 800,000 killed, but many, many more than that actually died. I will never forget in 2008 being on a trip with World Vision, and we went to a part of Kenya, and the people who were leading our trip took an American pastor into Rwanda to show the work that World Vision was involved in bringing reconciliation and healing to that nation. And after three or four days, we all met back together in Nairobi, and this guy was still traumatized. They'd said to him on particular day, we're going to see the national memorial of the genocide in Rwanda. He went expecting to see a monument, a stone with names on. Instead, they took him to a school. And as he walked along the corridor in that particular school, each classroom was filled with skulls. Each classroom was filled with bones of those 800,000 people who were killed in the genocide. And afterwards, Rwanda had to have a Truth and Reconciliation Commission because they realized, learning from the situation in South Africa, that if there was to be healing in that nation, if there really was to be forgiveness, then the truth had to be faced up to. Reality had to be seen for what it is. Forgiveness didn't mean that you ignored or played down the extent of what had happened. But rather, forgiveness had to be based on facing up to the horror and the pain and the violence that had taken place. And the same is true when it comes to the reconciliation that God offers between ourselves and himself, between God and humanity. It has to be based on truth. It has to be based on reality. 
It has to be based on the situation being faced up to as to how it really is. As we've seen from the last few weeks, there are several pictures, images used to describe the death of Jesus in the New Testament. We're sort of helicoptering around several of them, three or four, that occur again and again in the New Testament. They're borrowed from the temple, the law court, the marketplace, and relationships. There's the idea of the law court and justification, that we are justified. Paul actually says that in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith. There's the idea of the marketplace and redemption that we looked at last week. The idea that we're bought back, we're bought with a price, that you and I have been purchased by the death of Jesus. There's the idea from the temple of a sacrifice being made, an atonement being made. And we'll look at that more in detail next week as we look at the book of Hebrews and the way in which Jesus was the sacrifice for your sin and for my sin and for the sin of the whole world. But the picture we're looking at this evening is perhaps the most popular because it's the most personal. The law courts, the temple, the marketplace they're left behind. And we find ourselves rather in a home with friends and family. Because what we're looking at this evening is a picture about reconciliation. It's about restored relationships, of friendships, of perhaps imagining a friend who has hurt you and no longer speaks to you. Perhaps think of an ex-boyfriend or an ex-girlfriend or even a wife or husband with whom you've fallen out. Or perhaps a parent or a child that no longer speak, where the relationship has grown cold and distant and there is miscommunication and intransigence and just an inability to hear one another, which results in the breakdown of that particular relationship. That's the picture that we have between God and humanity. The relationship between God and human beings has broken down, has fractured, has distanced. There is division where once there was unity. There is fracture where once there was relationship. Our sin has caused a barrier between God and ourselves. And this picture of reconciliation goes to the very heart of what it means to be a Christian. There are some striking words that Jesus says to his disciples, his followers, on the last night before his death in John chapter 15 and verse 15. He says this to them. I no longer call you servants, he says. Instead, I've called you friends. I no longer call you servants, but instead I've called you friends. It's the unique feature at the heart of Christianity. It's why the Christian faith is different to every other world religion or belief system. It's different to Islam, different to Judaism. It's different to Buddhism or Hinduism or Sikhism or any other ism. Because right at the heart of the Christian faith is the offer that we are not simply called to be followers or adherents or disciples that we're not called to simply believe in doctrines or creeds or concepts or facts, but we're called into a relationship, a relationship with God himself, that God calls us 
his friends. In the book of Hebrews, it says that Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brother or sister. The picture is of of perhaps being at a party with Jesus, with a group of people that you don't know, and Jesus knows everybody at the party, and you rock up, and Jesus says, it's Stephen, it's Paul, it's Dom, it's Mark, it's Libby, she's my sister, he's my brother. He isn't ashamed of us, and he calls us his brother or his sister because we've become family. We've become friends with God himself. There was the thing that struck me when I was 17 and finding my way into the Christian faith. Having always believed in God and always known about God, suddenly going to a church where people spoke in these terms of of knowing God as a friend, in a relationship. I never experienced that before. I remember a, a friend of mine who became a really good friend, became my best man at my wedding, and him going through a questionnaire with me when I was about 15, then saying, well, you've got all the answers right, but you're still not a Christian. And me thinking, I'm going to kill him. Because he was the year beneath me at school. But he put his finger on it, and for two years it niggled away at me. I didn't know God as a friend. And the people that I started to mix with, they did know God as a friend, and it made a difference to their lives. In Romans chapter 5, Paul begins to unpack the consequences of justification. He says, therefore, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we can now be reconciled, he says. And because we've been justified, and because we've been reconciled, then there are three consequences that we have as a result. Peace, grace, and hope. Peace, grace, and hope. Firstly, he says, because we've been justified with God, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God. The actual picture is is stronger, much stronger, than that of a friendship or a relationship, a marriage, or even a parent-child relationship. I said that this is the most personal because it's it's often pictured as as a home where we become family, where we become friends. But actually what Paul speaks about here is much more powerful than that. It's much more bleak than that because what Paul pictures isn't actually a home. It's a battlefield. It's a battlefield. In verse 10, Paul says that before we come to know Jesus, we were God's enemies. We were God's enemies. When we're not in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, we are actually in a hostile relationship with God. We are in a state of war with God. We're not sort of on the fence, but Paul, writing to Jewish Christians, says, before you came to know Jesus, we were enemies of God. That's the result of our sin. It puts us at enmity with God himself. Sin is often pictured as many things as as failure or weakness, 
And that's true. There are four, five, six, seven, eight different images, words used to describe sin. There's ideas of falling short or, or aiming for a target and missing it. But one of the words that's used to describe sin is very simply rebellion. Rebellion. And if we're honest, that's how many of us live our lives. We know what we should do. We know what the Bible says we should do, but we decide to do the opposite. C.S. Lewis said, we are not merely imperfect creatures when it comes to God. We are rebels who need to lay down our arms. We were enemies before we came to know Jesus. But now because we've believed in Jesus' life and death and resurrection, we've been brought near and we've become God's friends. We've been reconciled. We've been justified. And now all is forgiven. Peace has been declared. God has changed his attitudes towards us, but it's based in reality. Sin has to be acknowledged. Sin has to be faced up to for what it is. It has to be admitted to. And there was nothing that we could do to earn God's approval. Paul says, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, powerless, there was nothing that we could do to earn God's approval, to earn God's love. We were powerless. But at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's people like you and people like me. But now peace, Paul says, has been declared. Peace which only God can give. And the Hebrew word for peace is this word shalom. And there are four elements to it. Peace with God, peace with ourselves, peace with other people, and peace with creation itself. It's all embracing. It's all encompassing. Peace has been declared if we believe in Jesus. And peace is now a gift to us. The reality is that you and I live in a world that is desperate for peace. We live in a world which is increasingly anxious. We live in a society and a culture which is increasingly fearful. It's one of the things over the last four or five years in politics, the way people have voted, it's been driven often by fear, by anxiety. They're looking for peace. The only problem is they're looking for it in the wrong place. And peace, in this instance, is a positive thing. It's not just the absence of war. It's something more than that. It's not just that hostilities have ceased, but it's something positive, tangible, real, a gift, one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit, part of the character of God himself that we're offered. So peace, Paul says, Since we've been justified through faith in Jesus, we have peace with God. And the second thing that we have is grace. Verse 2. We've gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. The war is over and we stand in grace. We've crossed over from, from darkness to light from being at war to being at peace, from being in death in being in life. And we've crossed over, and that word access is 
There's a sort of formal tinge to it. It means almost that you've been given a, a, an introduction note that if you were to give to somebody and say, I'm with so-and-so, they would let you into the party or into the nightclub or wherever it is you're going or into the, the football stadium. You'd be allowed in because of this note. That's the access that Jesus has achieved for us by the cross. That's the access that we now stand under. And we can come freely into the presence of God. We can come freely into the courts of God. Paul can invite us at the start of this service to enter into the presence of God. And because of Jesus, because of his life, because of his death, because of his resurrection, we can come freely into the presence of God in a way that millions of people were not able to do so before Jesus was born. The priest had to be chosen once a year to go into that special place wearing special clothes, saying special words. All that's gone. We can come just as we are, wearing jeans, wearing jumpers, wearing hoodies, wearing baseball caps. There's no special clothes. There's no special words. There's no special people because we have access because of the grace, the free, unconditional gift that God offers to us through the person of Jesus Christ. And we stand in that grace, Paul says. As it were, we live in the temple and we live in the palace, but we don't live as members of the court we live as members of the royal family. It's a bit like getting an invite to Balmoral. It's a bit like getting an invite to Holyrood Palace. And you can walk in, not as a tourist, not as a visitor, not as a special guest for the garden party, but you could walk in as a member of the royal family. That's the picture that Paul is giving us, that we have access because of the grace in which we stand because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. So there's peace, so there's grace, and finally there's hope. There's hope. Paul says in verse 3, we boast in the hope of the glory of God. And that's another thing that our world, our culture, our society is desperate for at the moment. They're desperate for peace, but they're also desperate for hope. don't know about you, but I talk to lots of people where the situation at the moment just seems hopeless. Often people seem to be in despair. They have no hope. But Paul says we have hope. And Christian hope isn't blind optimism or sentimental denial of difficulties. Paul is very clear and realistic. He says, we glory in our sufferings. And that word sufferings is a particular word. It's a, a Greek word, thalipsis. And it, it doesn't mean sort of, it doesn't mean things like illness. It's much more precise than that. The sufferings, the troubles, that's the, the literal translation of the word. It means the troubles that we have because we follow Jesus. The pressure that the world puts upon us 
because we decide to do what Jesus wants us to do. The pressure that we feel because we decide to live our lives differently to our society, to our culture, because we base our lives upon God's love, as we were singing earlier. That we decide, that we resolve to live our lives, to lead our lives, to build our lives on the foundation that God's love offers that will bring a pressure, that will bring a thlipsis, that will bring a trouble, that will bring a suffering. That's the suffering that Paul is referring to in Romans chapter 5. And Paul says we glory in those thlipsis, those sufferings, because we know that sufferings produce perseverance, perseverance produces character, character produces hope. And hope doesn't put us to shame because of the Holy Spirit living in us. That's how we're enabled to live the lives that God wants us to live. That's how we're enabled to keep on going. That's how we're enabled to keep on trusting. Not doing our best, but allowing the Holy Spirit to fill us with the very life of Jesus himself. Remember the first time I took our eldest uh, child Josh um, to it was this it was about 15 and there used to be a, a conference in Scotland called clan gathering and uh, Josh and John who was the youth director at the time and I went over to St Andrews to the particular day and it was the first time that Josh had experienced really 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 charismatic worship um, and it, it was it was bonkers um, I knew it was my son when within the first three minutes he turned to me and just went hmm flags because flags were in the way of the screen and you couldn't actually see the words that we were supposed to sing because people were waving flags in the front in front of the screens and Josh for the first time ever in this sort of environment went why are they doing that in front of the screens why don't they do it at the back where they wouldn't get in the way where we could actually read the words and I thought good point Josh why doesn't someone tell those people they should be at the back that's a whole different discussion but I remember on the way home, coming from back from St. Andrews, and we started a conversation about the Holy Spirit. And uh, we drove all the way back from St. Andrews talking about the Holy Spirit. And Josh has been around church all of his life. Josh had been around P's and G's all of his life. He'd had the best children's work in Scotland. He'd had the best youth work in Scotland, I think. But he never really experienced the Holy Spirit in that particular way. And I remember we got just an almost home. We got to the roundabout by the bank just before you get to Waitrose and Stockbridge. And I remember Josh just turning to me and saying, Jesus, I can cope with. The cross, I can cope with. The resurrection, I can cope with. The Holy Spirit, I'm not sure. And I said to Josh, it doesn't work like that. It sort of comes as a package, really. That if you believe in Jesus, if you believe in the death, if you believe in the resurrection, if you believe in the second coming, then the whole point is that you're supposed to also believe and experience in the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is the spirit of Jesus. And because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, we can now have the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead living in us. Josh looked at me and went, Two or three years later, Josh went to Rwanda and he spent three or four months with Tear Fund. 
And Josh came back a different person because he'd experienced the love and the power of God, both in the people that he saw in Rwanda, but also in his own life. He experienced the reality of the Holy Spirit in a way that he hadn't experienced before. Paul says, we have that life living in us. We have that hope living in us. We boast in the hope of the glory of God. Tim Keller writes, Jesus did not just die the death that we should have died. He lived the life that we should have lived. And because Jesus lived that life, because Jesus died that death, his life can live in us. And that's all made possible through the death, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus. It's all made possible through the events that we'll remember in a few minutes when we take the bread and the wine. When we remember again the reconciliation that God made possible between humanity and himself. So where are you this evening? Do you need to experience something of God's peace? Maybe it's peace in a relationship. Maybe it's peace in your relationship with God. Maybe it's peace in your relationship actually with yourself. Maybe it's peace in a relationship with somebody else. Maybe somebody in this church. It may be somebody in a past church. It may be somebody at school. It may be somebody at work. It may be somebody in your family. But you're aware this evening that there's a fractured, broken relationship. That there's division, there's dislocation, there's distance. There's been hurt, there's been pain, there's been angry words, and now there's a, a blockage in that relationship. Jesus says that partly our forgiveness is based on the forgiveness that we offer to others. Again, in a few minutes, we'll say the words of the Lord's Prayer. And we'll say, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Reconciliation is not just with God, but it's actually with each other as well. Maybe it's that peace that you need this evening. Maybe it's that grace that you need to recognize that you have access to live in God's presence. Maybe it's hope that you need this evening. Maybe it's more of the reality and the presence and the power of the Spirit of God, the life of God, the life of Jesus living in you that you need this evening. Paul says, since we have been justified, we have these things. Peace, grace, and hope. They're on offer to us. It's our choice whether we ask for them or not whether we receive them or not.